The Guardian. Media Talk and Tech Weekly from Guardian.co.uk. Hello, I'm John Plunkett. And I'm Jemima Kish. And this is Media Talk and Tech Weekly from the Media Guardian Edinburgh International Television Festival. The event is the annual gathering of television bods who come together to talk through the issues that matter. But this year, as well as chats with the controllers, screenings of episodes from the new series of Doctor Who and The Killing, and an appearance from Libya by Sky News correspondent Alex Crawford, the festival has got in touch with its digital side. Yes, this year's sessions about connected TV, Twitter and a keynote speech by Google's executive chairman Eric Schmidt have all been on the bill and we're going to bring you a flavour of that in this week's programme. We provide platforms for people to engage in content and through automated software we show ads next to content, but we have neither the ambition nor the know-how to actually produce content at any large scale. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if you put us in charge of programming? I mean, bad sci-fi, strange-looking viral videos and, you know, weird, colorful things. And I mean, what you all do is actually hard, and we're no good at it. In a moment, we'll be analyzing the speech by the search giant's top man. And, not to be outdone, later we'll be hearing from Facebook on how their platform is tying in with the telly. Plus, we'll have the controllers of the UK's big TV channels telling us all about the new programs they'll be putting on our screens over the next few months and hearing about Miranda Hart's embarrassing incident with a chocolate member that made its way all the way to the top of the BBC. That was deemed a bit, a bit risque for 8.30, so we reshot me walking down the street holding a chocolate willy and uh, into a much wider shot with me not licking it. That's all coming up in this week's Media Talk and Tech Weekly from the Edinburgh International Television Festival and The Guardian. We're here to break down some of the themes from Friday night's keynote speech by Eric Schmidt. And I say we because I'm joined by Elaine Bedell, ITV's Director of Entertainment and also Executive Chair of the Festival. And Dan Saber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Technology. Welcome to you both. How is the festival going so far for you, Elaine? I think it's been a really good weekend, um, full of kind of meaty topics and sessions and, of course, capped last night by Eric Schmidt's Taggart, which I genuinely found thought-provoking um, I love the way he delivered it I quite like his kind of laconic style but genuinely I thought preaching to an audience of lovies and television lovies um, it really did feel like he was coming from a different place and I think everybody was very kind of alert to that and interested in, in what he had to say well, we'll get into what we make of what he said in a moment, along with a few notable audience members telling John Plunkett how they rated the speech. But first, let's jump back to hear a few highlights from the lecture. Just to be a little obnoxious, listen to the entrepreneurs, not the lawyers, if you want to revitalize your business. Listen to the people who invent a new business. They see a new way of building an audience. So the UK is home of, of so many media-related inventions. It's interesting that you invented photography, you invented television, you invented computers both in concept and in practice, yet none of the le world's leading players in these fields are from the UK. That's a problem. How can you avoid the same fate for your television innovations? I think you need to bring art and science back together. Think back to the glory days of the Victorian era, which I've so, so much studied on television growing up. It was a time when the same people who wrote poetry also built bridges. Lewis Carroll didn't just write one of the classic fairy tales of all time. He was also a mathematics tutor at Oxford. 
James Clerk Maxwell was described by Einstein as one of the best physicists since Newton, and that's without doubt, but he was also a published poet. But over the last century, the, the UK has stopped nurturing its polymaths, I would argue. There's been a drift to the humanities. Engineering and science are not as championed. Even worse, both sides seem to denigrate the other. To use what I'm told by my uh, British friends as the local vernacular, you're either a lovey or a buffin. To change that, you need to start at the beginning with education. We need to reignite children's passion for science, engineering, and mathematics. I, uh, I saw on the other day on The Apprentice that Alan Sugar said engineers are no good for business. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Shall we check a few facts here? <laughs> really? Well, I don't think we've done so badly. So, if the U sorry, I just couldn't I just couldn't resist, you know. <laughs> um, if the UK's creative in in industries want to thrive in in our joint digital future, you need people who understand all facets of it integrated in from your very beginning. Eric Schmidt has just finished delivering his McTaggart lecture. We are outside the Festival Theatre in the heart of Edinburgh, and we're going to find out what people made of it. I'm Mariella Frostrup. I thought it was great. I've met him before, and so I, I, my expectations were pretty high anyway, um, because uh, although he is a boffin and a geek, I'm sure, um, he's also just so terrifyingly bright that um, it's always quite engaging to hear what he has to say. My, my head's aching from trying to keep up with him, and I think in a way it's a sort of metaphor for how the internet makes an awful lot of people feel, particularly in the, in the television industry, which is just that it's just too much, and how, and and, 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 and kind of now you want to sit down in a corner with Eric Schmidt and say, okay, well, you, you know, you don't, you want to deregulate and, and you don't want to, you know, you believe in privacy and so on. How? You know, sorry about that ambulance. It's a few broadcasters having heart attacks. Um, and no, I, so, so I think he's, what he's done is he's opened a conversation, but he hasn't uh, given all the answers. Um, hello, I'm Stephen Moffat. I thought it was, I really liked it. Actually, it was really, really positive and really sort of, so kind of sweet and uplifting. I'm now stuck with the fact I'm a lovey and not a boffin, which is very obvious from Doctor Who, clearly. Uh, and Doctor Who got two mentions, so I'm, uh, I'm really happy. You can often get these uh, McTaggarts, and they either have a proposed an entirely bonkers plan that everyone ignores, or they're just evil, like two years ago. Uh, and that one just a sort of really sort of positive, uplifting message. I liked it. I really liked it. He's obviously hugely clever. It's quite nice to get a lecture from someone who's hugely clever. I'm Alan Rusford, John for The Guardian. I thought it was extremely refreshing to have somebody from outside the industry. It was great having an international uh, experience and having an engineer and having somebody from a computing background. I thought the ambition of what he had to say and the encouragement for, for Britain to think big was, was good. I got a bit anxious when he started talking about regulation because I wasn't completely sure what bits of regulation he wanted to loosen up and what he didn't. But in general, I, I think the, the Google approach of being open is the right one. I am Fru Hazlitt, and I am the MD of Commercial Online and Interactive at ITV. I just think he's amazing, and I have done for years. I first saw him speak years and years ago when I was at Yahoo, and I think he's brave and wonderful. Professionally, we pay a lot of money to commission and create content, a huge 
huge amount of money and it takes a lot of effort. So if we're going to collaborate with other platforms, then we need to make sure that we get a return on our investment because content drives everything. And it doesn't matter how wonderful Eric Schmidt is and how incredibly convincing. He knows that too. Eric Schmidt was an interesting choice to deliver the McTaggart speech, the first non-industry person to deliver the lecture in its 35 years. Why him? Um, well, Google is the biggest internet company in the world um, and obviously has been at the forefront of quite a lot of innovation. Um, quite a lot of us at the broadcasters have recently entered into partnerships with Google on YouTube over content. And so there was already a sort of marrying of the two industries and it, it just felt like he was absolutely the right choice this year. I mean, I, I think now we've heard the speech, it sort of feels amazing. We waited 35 years for it. Um, you know, it feels sort of overripe to be having this kind of debate about where technology meets content. But but I'm very glad we've finally done it. Look, it certainly made a lot of sense, I think, bringing, in, bringing on Eric this year. Uh, uh, certainly the time was right for it. But I think perhaps the, the lingering hope that uh, he was about to announce that YouTube was going to become a content investor in a major way or maybe that there'll be some more cash on the table from Google in terms of investing content that certainly didn't come through and he wasn't here to signal an evolution in Google's strategy I think he was here to make a, a you know a pitch to the broadcasting industry and essentially say look we're your friend and uh, and, and, and you should trust us so I don't think there, was, there, was much, there wasn't much new from him but it was nice to have him here it was right to have him here specifically he says I, I'm not your enemy we're here to help um, and I think the ways in which they're going to help sort of remain a bit cloudy um, and we sort of wait to hear more. I mean, I, I know he said in his Q&A session, I think, today that um, one of his suggestions was that we might broadcast pilots on YouTube, although he wasn't directly going to come up with any funding for it. But why didn't, you know, 10-minute versions of shows, put them out on YouTube, see what the kind of reaction is before we invest millions of pounds in them instead of just hundreds of thousands I, it's it's not a very practical offer i don't i don't think but um but yeah he he they quite clearly are not going to be paying much for content they're going to be carrying it elaine could you characterize what tv's attitude is to google is it markedly different from other technology giants like apple and microsoft for example um I think it's different in that they're the owner of YouTube and I think you have to, uh, as a broadcaster, you have to accept that YouTube is a very powerful channel um, and it's a very powerful way of getting your content out there. Um, I think there's no question we were all a bit suspicious about how that partnership was going to develop and whether in effect... Uh, how they were going to carry our content but but at ITV as I say we've recently entered into a partnership with YouTube where we share content we did our X Factor auditions and Britain's Got Talent auditions this year on YouTube and so and and on much better terms than than have been offered by Google before so I think um, you know in that way they they clearly are a very different kind of um, animal at the moment to the rest. Dan how's the Eric Schmidt scorecard doing how did he do and what were the, the main themes I think, I think Eric is the kind of lovable monopolist really you know, he comes here I think he comes here to charm uh, and win friends and he's done that you know he's done that very well I mean Google is you know one should go back to first principles Google is a tremendously successful company with a dominant share in search that doesn't pay an awful lot of tax 
it does at least innovate and is an incredibly disruptive force in the sort of um, advertising economy and it's it's tough it's a competitor of sorts to uh, ITV it's really competitive to local newspapers and so on so I, I think what Eric does incredibly well is he puts a um, uh, you know, a friendly gloss on it all, and I think what 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 Google, being quite an open company, with quite an open executive team, actually quite porous and strong set of external relationships, it, it, that that helps a lot, I think, in deflecting potential critics because its top team are able to get along, you know, get along with folks. Well, he only had warm words for the broadcasters, really. I think BBC, Sky, ITV, and Channel Four all had a mention in there. He was celebrating the iPlayer criticising the contracts rights renewal system that sets ITV's ad rates. But was this just a PR offensive to ease fears about being a parasite and then try and win them on side for Google TV? I don't know if it was a... Well, it, was a certainly, it was certainly a charm... It was, look, it was certainly a charm offensive and, you know, I think... Re, you know, and, and clearly a reasonably successful one. And sure, he's got a product to talk about Google TV, although... I mean, not one that's been terribly successful in this in, in the states, and not one we sort of terribly well understand. Although we all believe that television and internet will come together through through browsing through the TV screen at some point, and someone will get that right. I, I suspect that'll be Apple rather than Google. But uh, you know, but 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 let's see. Look, he, he said some. Um, he made some good points about the state of British education, which I think, given that he made them, given who it was that was saying them, were, were well made. I mean, the sort of the lack of. Uh, software education at GCSE level and in our schooling system, I think, is a you know a very powerful and important point. And I think you know when a global business leader like the, you know like him comes over and says you know education policy is wrong, you know, that's something that's worth saying. I'm not saying it will lead to radical action, but that was an important point and worthwhile. To Dan's point about the kind of you know where the boffins meet meet the lovies. Um, where science meets arts. I mean, I, I thought that point was really well made, not just in education, but in the industry as well. I mean, you know, there is a huge separation between the technologists and the, and the creators of content. And I think his his examples were were very apposite, really, and we do need to kind of address that, it, particularly in a world where interactivity is going to be such a kind of strong part of content. Um, and I, I that's certainly one of the points that I'll be going home with and thinking about. Dan, beyond Eric, what has really stood out for you this festival? Any particular highlights? I think we've had, we've had some fun. We've had Ricky Gervais, uh, who's always entertaining. And I think, so we've had a sort of, I think, the strongest stream of uh, reflective, I think, what goes on the wider Edinburgh Festival on the fringe, which is so dominated by comedy now. And I think it's nice to, to get a sense of, I think, uh, an injection of what's going on in Edinburgh uh, broadly here, sometimes the TV festivals felt like a sort of a bubble, slightly academic bubble with a few too many discussions about policy and not enough about creativity. I think there's a balance that's got to be, uh, you know, there's a balance that's got to be struck. Look, the other highlight, the standout highlight, I guess, was clearly Alex Crawford uh, giving a passionate uh, and emotional talk about war reporting uh, live from Tripoli. And it's a real, I mean, it's fantastic that she agreed to do it. It's fantastic it managed to happen because, I mean, I think the original plan was she'd give the address from here against a rather sort of different backdrop. But obviously, Crawford was sort of driving in the back of a pickup truck only a week ago to sort of with the liberators of Tripoli, if you will, uh, and ending up in Green Square all in the night's work live, you know, live on Sky News. Fantastic television, fantastic bravery, just absolutely fantastic. Elaine, what else stood out for you? 
Well, I, I mean, I, I agree about Alex Crawford. I, I found it mesmerising, actually, and um, her description of being trapped in that mosque in, uh, and, and thinking that actually this, this could be her last ever broadcast was, um, was something I think I'll remember for a long time. So that, that for me, was very good. Um, I enjoyed the TV Family Fortune session, um, the opening session, um, with all the channel controllers going head-to-head with their uneasy handshakes at the at the top of the show um, uh, yeah the, those and the McTaggart for me have, have been the highlights I think so far thank you very much Dan and Elaine now the festival attracts all the big cheeses from the TV channels and so to find out the current state of our terrestrial television we stalked the halls and tracked down the controls of the big five I spoke to the heads of BBC One ITV One Channel Four and Channel Five and in the middle, you'll hear Tara Conlon speaking with BBC Two controller Janice Hadlow. But we start with Peter Fincham of ITV. Peter, it's been a, a tale of two Ds at ITV this year, of Downton Abbey and, and, and Daybreak. Did the, the scale of the, the success of Downton take you by surprise? Uh, it always takes you by surprise because people sometimes say to me, you must have known it was going to be a hit. No, you don't. No, you don't. You know, the night it goes out, you're as nervous as, as with anything, thinking, I hope people like this. At the other extreme, Daybreak hasn't rated well. You, you've made changes. You're making more changes. Do you have any regrets? No, no, I don't, I, not at all. I think that if you don't watch it, but just read about it, it would give you an image of Daybreak, which I think is quite different if you actually watch it, because I think if you watch it, it's a good show. And, you know, we're, we're still working on it. We want to, to, to get stronger. Can you give us one idea about how it might change in the future, one change you want really, to make? When we're ready to, we'll be announcing a new editor of Daybreak, and I don't really want to tie that person's hands by saying anything particularly. Um, so you won't be no, watch new this presenters. space. No, no, no. So watch, watch this space. X Factor was back without Simon Cowell. How do you think it's done so far? All of one episode? Well, in. All, all of one episode, and obviously an important moment, an important launch. So watching it and also watching Twitter, you just can't keep up with it. But within 10 minutes, I could see people were really liking this new X Factor. So early days, I don't want to sound as if uh, you, you know, it's all in the bag yet, but really good launch and we were really pleased with it. Talking of Cal, he's going to be one of the producers on uh, Red or Black, which you must be very excited about. Yeah, yeah no, that's, a, that's a, a, a big launch for us. Do you expect criticism of that show that it's going to encourage gambling? It's not a gambling show, so no, I don't think it does encourage gambling. It's not, the, the, the contestants don't put any money down. They're not, they, they've got, you know, they, they, they choose between red or black. That's not, that's not the way that gambling works. But the finale is a, the spin of a roulette wheel and people choose red or black, whether they win a million pounds yes, or, or but gam- nothing. Yes, but gambling is when you have a stake, when you, when you, when you place a stake. So, so you don't think the perception of it... No, I don't think As so. A casino no, style no, show. no, no, I don't think so. And, and it's not the first show on ITV to have uh, to have offered a million pounds as a prize. And Peter, you're at a meet the controller session at Edinburgh. So if you were at another meet the controller session, would you? What would your question be for a, one of your fellow channel controllers? Oh God, I don't know. It depends. I suppose it depends which. Um, oh, I don't know. If it was Danny Cohen. I'd say, what interesting programmes have you got coming up? And when are you going to schedule them, Danny? Hi, my name is Danny Cohen. I'm the controller of BBC One. Uh, Peter Fincham has asked me what are my big shows, um, when am I going to schedule them, and I think the answer to that is um, I can't tell you. Well, that's a good start. Um, Miranda is coming to BBC One, but that's not the only studio-based sitcom that you're after. No, um, we've just announced a new project. We're going to transmit four comedy pilots. We've asked for uh, initial runner scripts to be in by 30th of November. We'd like to get them into production in the first half of next year. And the aim is to uh, supercharge our development process. I feel we're uh, undersupplied with comedy scripts, particularly in studio sitcom. So this is one way of us expressing uh, our need for more uh, mainstream comedy for BBC One. You're also after some observational documentaries at 9 o'clock. Is this Driving School 2? 
Uh, not driving school too. No one's mentioned that so far. No, we'd like to find some more hour-long observational documentary for nine o'clock, both singles and series. I think it's something we haven't been doing quite enough of, um, and we're going to look for those. We've actually commissioned two or three series, which you'll see uh, at some point next year. You're also after more, more panel shows and QIs going back from one to BBC Two. Why do you think it didn't quite work on one? It, I think it did work on one. It, its audiences were really, really strong on one. It, it got between four and five million, very, very respectable audiences uh, for that time of night. Uh, it was more about um, you know, a, a shared portfolio relationship with other channels and BBC Two's older relationship with it, and I was happy uh, to um, let that one go back as much as I was grateful for BBC Two allowing us to have Miranda. And, of course, on Saturday nights, we've got The Voice coming up. Why did you feel the need to go outside and not develop a, a talent show format in-house? Um, well, we always look for new, new entertainment shows uh, in-house and with the independent production community, and we've got a huge amounts of them in development and production. But I also think there's nothing wrong with looking uh, to the wider world every so often as we've done in the past. I think The Apprentice is a great example of that. And just finally, uh, your question, please, for our next TV controller. Um, my question for Jeff Ford is uh, how are you feeling so far about Big Brother? Uh, Jeff Ford, Director of Programmes, Channel 5. Um, I'm absolutely delighted with the way um, Celebrity Big Brother has launched. Um, it, I, 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 to be perfectly honest, knew it would work. I just didn't know how well it would work. And it has worked brilliantly. The show looks fantastic. Um, and more than a great, a great, a great bit of work on it. It's a great production, great people behind it. Uh, it is a fun entertainment piece now. It is not a social document. Um, it is purely entertainment, and you can see that the way it's, it, it's produced. Um, in terms of ratings, it means that we've just now got uh, we're able to connect with a 1634 audience, which we've never been able to in in that volume. We're, we're oh, sometimes the biggest thing on. TV was certainly the biggest thing on for 1634s. You know, we're getting a quarter of all 1634s watching Big Brother uh, every single night. Um, and you know, when we had our launch, we were the biggest thing on TV by some some stretch. And you said it would uh, usher in a, a new era at Channel Five. What, what did you mean by that? I think just the ability to be, for us to be able to do different things that, that we've not been able to do, or things that we have been able to do in the past and just not got the recognition for. Um, you know, as a, Extraordinary People was a, a great example of that the other night um, when we had the lady you know, who lost one of her giant legs. And it was, um, it was yeah, it did 1.8 million viewers. Now, I think if that had been in isolation, it probably wouldn't have done so well. This, this going from now on, from Big Brother on, it is actually building the new Channel 5 and what the channel's about. And give us a, a brief insight into life as a channel controller uh, at a station owned by Richard Desmond. How hands-on is he in terms of sort of day-to-day involvement? Look, he's, he, I wouldn't say day-to-day involvement, but he's a TV viewer, and TV viewers normally have opinions. He's a harsh critic, but he also is absolutely supportive. of. He can, see, he can see why we're doing things and how we're doing things. But, you know, he's always questioning because he wants things to be better. Well, we just made the decision to recommission the hour. Uh, we've done it because we love it as a show. All of us have agreed that there is just so much more that we still want to know about the characters, about the journey they go on. It's a fantastic moment in history where you bring together opportunities to talk about relationships between men and women. It's all about a, a moment in Britain's history when there's real shifts going on. It's a fantastically rich opportunity to make BBC Two-type drama. And you said about Newsnight, uh, it's, it's not going to be scrapped, not that we thought it would be, but might it be changed, refreshed in any way? 
Refreshing is something that any good editor will be doing constantly, making sure that Newsnight continues to redefine, if you like, what it is to be Newsnight. But I think the core values of the programme and what it stands for are constant and ones that we are committed to. Some of the things which once only Newsnight did, you can now find in lots of other news territories. You know, that that sense of um, uh, opinion and authorship, all of those things uh, that were once perhaps unique to the show have now found a role in lots of other places. And in common with lots of successful shows, it's having to think and uh, uh, about how it redefines itself in the shadow of that success. And just finally, what question would you ask any other controller? What's the thing that most excites you about your channel in the next year? What are you most passionately looking forward to or at the same time perhaps rather terrified of? I'm Jay Hunt, Chief Creative Officer at Channel 4. I think the thing I'm most excited about is that we've got lots of new money going into lots of different genres at Channel 4 and that we're going to create a new generation of hits. And the thing I'm most worried about is that we don't create a next generation of hits, but I'm very hopeful we will. So Jay, uh, you probably talk about this show more now it's not on your channel than when it was on your channel, but how's life without Big Brother? I think it's absolutely fine. I mean, genuinely, I wouldn't have come to Channel 4 if Big Brother had still been in the schedule. What excited me about this job was having an opportunity to completely reinvigorate what Channel 4 was doing and take it on to the next era. So it would be churlish of me in the extreme to then be nervous that it wasn't there. Is it difficult now that Channel 5 is now getting two, maybe three million viewers a night at 10pm when previously it was more like one million? How much of a headache is that for you in, in terms of audience share? I mean, honestly, it's not a headache at all. I mean, these things, there are ebbs and flows. I mean, it'd be a bit like saying, you know, ITV's had a terrible summer. It's never going to come back from that. I mean, and then Peter can unveil a very, very strong ITV Saturday night. So we're very much in this sort of the long game. Across a year, we massively outperformed Channel 5 in terms of all individuals and 16 to 34. So I feel pretty comfortable about it. And you mentioned there in your answer uh, to Janice Hedlow's question about what you're excited about. Two three particular shows that you'd highlight for us? Very excited by Top Boy from this autumn, Ronan Bennett's extraordinary piece about gang life in Peckham in South London, couldn't feel more topical now. I think Charlie Brooker's scripts for Black Mirror, which are our trilogy of satirical shows, looking very clearly at, at the way in which technology is changing our lives forever. I'm very, very hopeful of those. And I think uh, for next year, I'm excited that Jimmy Doherty's come to the channel. He'll be looking at food pricing and the ethics of what we buy and what goes in our supermarket, which I think at a time of spiralling prices couldn't be more topical. So I think a real range there. We're outside the session that um, has just been held on convergence, so the ways that broadcasters can really make the most of interactive platforms um, and combining those with their television programmes. Um, I'm with Christian Hernandez, who's Director of Platform Development um, at Facebook. So we heard some positive signs, I think, from broadcasters about integrating services like Facebook with their programming. Were you encouraged by um, some of the things that were said in that session? What really stood out for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we already work closely with both Channel 4 and ITV, so it's not a, a new relationship. Um, but what, it's, what stood out for me was, was two things. One, this notion of wanting to tap into the conversation that happens in social networks to benefit their brands, their advertisers, which they talked a lot about, um, and their viewers. And this idea of actually doing things on a second screen, be that an iPad or a Facebook game, that led people to be actively engaged or actually subsequently engaged with the, with the show. Data was actually really interesting, the fact that they, especially Channel 4 recognizes the value of this data, the insight to their customers. Channel 4 has a Facebook login connect button on the front page. You arrive on, fa- on Channel 4, you log in with Facebook. I don't know for a fact, but I'm pretty sure they don't do anything with that data. I, as a user, shared all these insights about who I was. In return, I expect some personalization, some level of experience. 
And so the fact that they talked about trying to drive that and create that was encouraging. Um, I know that in Germany you've been working with Big Brother Germany on uh, a system where users can vote through Facebook. And Steve Hewlett, presenting the panel, asked you quite what Facebook gets out of these deals. Um, but you do actually take a revenue share on that, don't you? Can you explain how that works? Yeah, so we have games on Facebook, Zynga or you know, Playdom or all these different games. And um, on it, you buy sheep or you buy houses and you, buy, you pay with Facebook credits, which is a virtual currency. The, the structure for Facebook credits is that it's a virtual good. Um, the creator of the virtual good keeps 70%. We, as the infrastructure provider and brand provider and risk mitigator for the payment mechanism, keep 30%. So, and the malls work pretty closely with us. Uh, and the first show to go live is Big Brother in Germany. You're watching the show. You actually go in to the, into an app. Um, the person on air says, go vote now. You select your Big Brother character, and you vote, and you pay with credits. In the case of Germany, it's seven credits, which is about 70 uh, U.S. cents per vote. Um, and you vote with credits at a 70 U.S. cents. 30% comes to us, 70% to the broadcaster. But the interesting thing is uh, we've been live about four or five weeks. Since launch, we are now about 10% of the votes, and it's an incremental 10% of the votes. So it's not that we were cannibalizing calling or SMS. It's actually we've increased the amount of votes. Therefore, we've increased revenue for the broadcaster. And how much appetite is there among broadcasters? Because I'd, I'd really like to see them being a little bit more inventive than just extending their rather lucrative voting systems onto Facebook. Aren't there more things they could be doing? Um, yeah, but I think this, actually, this, this is an easy one, right? Because this actually is something they're comfortable with and they know makes money. And so the first question from them was, is this going to cannibalize the other money? And now with, with Big Brother Germany, I can prove that it doesn't. Secondly, it's regulatory. So in the, in the UK, actually, Ofcom regulates uh, how voting can be applied. They, um, they did a ruling on Monday that actually states that they will allow on, on web application voting starting now. So now in the UK, we can actually go talk to partners with an Ofcom ruling that allows that. But I think this will be the first step. Once you start creating this hub, kind of Facebook hub for a show, um, in which you vote, but you could also transact, you could also buy behind-the-scenes content, it, it'll become another way to engage with them through Facebook. There was some concern among um, David Abram, the Channel 4 chief executive particularly, that in using services like Facebook um, as a kind of identity management for users logging into, say, the Channel 4 site, you'd be handing over, um, sacrificing some of that really valuable data that, that they really need if they're going to retain commercial control of, of what they're doing. And should broadcasters be focusing on establishing partnerships with organizations like Facebook that have already got a lot of expertise and invested a huge amount of money and arguably an entire business around identity management? Or do you think that it's too risky for Channel 4 to do that and that they should try and have their own kind of consumer ID management tool? He wanted to have insight into the customer. He wanted to know who, the, who was engaging with his content, combining it with his own insights as to what's broadcasting where, what type of show, to then add value back to their advertisers. So when a user arrives on channel4.com, the user opts in to log in with their Facebook identity. And the value that we provide to Channel 4 is that the user says, I am Christian Hernandez, live in London. By the way, this is my age. This is where I went to university. This is all I like. By the way, do you know I like Burberry and I happen to like McDonald's and I like these other brands? And the user is opting to share that with, with Channel 4. So if Channel 4 knew that fans of skins are of this demographic with these interests, 
and they could aggregate that and, sh and actually take it to the broadcaster. They're not allowed to share as per terms specific user information, but they could gain insights from that and say, average age of the person engaged with skins is 24 male and they happen to like these different brands, you might want to tap into them. For them to go replicate that level of insight is going to be very challenging. We give it to them, the user gives it to them by effectively opting in with a Facebook identity. Do you think you might see more pressure from broadcasters who want you to release more information about users in return for, for working with them? Um, the user actually gets, gives away a fair amount of information first, so I would, I would argue back to them that first start looking at what's already in your databases that you probably haven't leveraged and start figuring out how to find value from that before you ask for more because the information is there. You just start using it. I have yet to come across a data analyst team at a broadcaster. They, they might exist, I just haven't dealt with them. And I would love to sit down with them and explain to them all the data that is actually sitting in these treasure troves and how they could benefit from it. Some news now from around the rest of the festival. Veteran TV presenter Nick Ross raised eyebrows in a session on ageism in TV on Friday, whilst on a panel with Miriam O'Reilly, who won her discrimination case against the BBC earlier this year, he had some interesting insight into his female co-stars. When I got my first well, network programme, oh, yes. I was 23 and I replaced a man who was in his 60s. That is the nature of the business. When I get to my late 50s and 60s, am I going to say, I'm squatting here now, stuff it. You can't come in. The fact is, just go back. Do you remember Peter Sissons complaining about uh, how he was being thrown out because of all these telecuters coming in? I have to say, in 40 years in television, I have never worked with a minger. <laughs> if you go is that a technical it, term? I think it is. <laughs> the fact is, looks are important. They're important yeah. for boys as well as for girls. In our society probably through human history, but certainly go into the ground floor of Selfridges or anywhere else or go into any cosmetic boudoir, whatever, you'll find that it's much more important in our culture for women than it is for men. Now, if women are going to get in to television, partly because they look very good, the other side of that coin is what happens when they get older. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it is a force of our society. Like it or not, television is a lookism medium. And Sky News reporter Alex Crawford appeared by satellite live from Libya to explain how she copes with the risks and dangers of her job. You said a moment ago that they don't send me as a woman, they send me as a correspondent. But you, you also said earlier you've been banging on the door for years to become a foreign correspondent. Do you think that part of the reason they didn't want to make you a foreign correspondent for so long was because you were a woman and had young kids? Yeah, probably. I mean, I had my own doubts. Uh, m myself, I, I remember talking to a fellow correspondent saying, do you think I can really do it with four children? You know, do you think it's possible? And I, I, and I think that's only natural. You know, I remember one of my closest friends used to say, are you sure? Are you sure, Crawfee? I mean, what happens if one of them gets ill and you have to be flown out and all of this sort of thing? You know, um, yeah, they, they had doubts, but, um, but I wanted it more <laughs> than their doubts to eventually wore them down. You wore them down. Have you, have you ever had to leave because a kid has... I mean, I, there is a still a sexism, isn't there? You know, I remember there was a story a few years ago of about a, a, a young mother, a climber, whose body was found on Everest 
And there was a huge sort of press backlash against her saying how irresponsible it had been for her to go to Everest in a way that you can't imagine that Sir Edmund Hillary would have ever been uh, criticised for having gone to Everest. And I just wonder whether you come across that yourself in, you know, with friends that you've known along the way who kind of say, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, all the time. And it's, frankly, really insulting and very, very sexist. It's much more sexist than, giving you, than holding you back or not giving you the job, to actually, uh, to actually criticise you for doing the job, as you say. I mean, I'm working alongside um, today the chief correspondent, who's, who's a man who's got three children, and there will be no one who says... Uh, what, what do you think you're doing? What, how, how awful? What are you doing to your children? No one. It won't even be raised as an issue. And yet uh, the stories that I do, con uh, quite a lot of comment and a lot of criticism when I went to meet the Taliban about um, don't you think of your children? What, what are you doing? How can you do that? What happens if something had happened to you? Media Talk and Tech Weekly from guardian.co.uk so we're in the uh, Edinburgh Conference Centre with uh, Miranda Hart, the star of um, BBC Two, but soon to be BBC One sitcom Miranda. And hello. Hello there. Tell <laughs> us about the challenges of taking the show from BBC Two to BBC One. Editorially, I won't have to change anything at all because it was pre-watershed on BBC Two. It'll, uh, Writing-wise, it'll be just an easy transition. I won't have to think about it, and I'm not really thinking about it too much. Um, and then I suppose the, the pressure of it is really because they expect two or three million more people to watch it on one um, so uh, I'll be nervous of the ratings but apart from that really um, they've been repeating it on one this summer so that's going to be a bit of confidence to go that new audiences have found it and, and hopefully enjoyed it and then so when it premieres next year on, on one for the third series and hopefully I won't feel too anxious about it but yeah no it feels a sort of natural progression for the show. Uh, another question I thought I'd be asking you, but tell us about the chocolate penis. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, well, that was just that. That was uh, people often ask, you know, uh, being eight thirty was because it was initially not written for an eight thirty slot, and they'd, BBC Two decided to put it at eight thirty, and that was the one thing that we had to uh, to reshoot to put it at that time. This was a lolly made of chocolate that this looked like a, a penis. Yes, exactly. And uh, the controller BBC Two felt that it was just a bit. Too, I think I licked the chocolate penis. If I'm allowed to say that, it's the Guardian. I think we're all right with that. We're post watershed. We're we're, okay. you're, you're fine. Um, and uh, so that was deemed a bit a bit risque for 8:30. So we reshot me walking down the street holding a chocolate willy and uh, into a much wider shot with me not licking it. And this went all the way to the top of the BBC. It apparently here. went to the head of television. <laughs> yeah. So and there were lots of emails about um, licking or sucking question mark. Uh, between the, the, the bods at the BBC, so that's hilarious that I caused that little uh, chocolate woolly-based ruckus. Many thanks to Miranda, who will be making her BBC One debut later this year. And that's it. Media Talk and Tech Weekly will be back to normal next week, available on Friday and Tuesday, respectively. If this has whetted your appetite, there's more coverage in Monday's Media Guardian, and there's a breakdown of all the weekend sessions on the site at mediaguardian.co.uk. We're off to the bar now, where there are more red noses than a BBC One fundraising event. Thanks for listening. I'm John Plunkett. And I'm Jemima Kish. And the programme was produced by Scott Corley. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.